Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. So this episode will begin a kind of a new series, a new new season, if you will, of the HP Lovecraft Book Club that will be focusing on the stories that he wrote from like 1929 to 1930. In fact, we're just going to be looking at three stories published under his name, The Whisper in Darkness, At the Mountains of Madness, and The Shadow Over Innsmouth. And then we'll have uh, a series of revisions, one of which uh, I didn't include in the last series. Actually, I, I recorded it, but I lost it. Uh, the Curse of Yeg, the, uh, all the Zelia Bishop revisions, all three of them we'll look at, including The Mound and a handful of others. So altogether, it'll be like 15 or 16 episodes of stories. Um, about half will be uh, stories he published under his name. Maybe even more than half of those, because I'm going to go over these in multiple episodes. So for most of the stories that we looked at for Lovecraft, I did it for like one or two episodes. There were some exceptions, like Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and Case of Charles Dexter Ward. But the vast majority were just one-off because uh, they were short stories, right? But with Whisper and Darkness, and, and it kind of, you could say, this starts with Dunwich Horror, too, Lovecraft goes long, by his standards long, right? Not by modern you know, standards of, of fantasy science fiction writing where you, every book has to be a multi-volume like series or something. Um, it was long by his standards at the time. So uh, like Whisper and Darkness, Shadow Over Innsmouth, and At the Mountains of Madness together... Just those three stories account for like 250 pages or so. So I'll have to break those up into various parts to give them any any depth. So that's the plan going forward for the next, I don't know, two months or so. Two months worth of episodes. So uh, yeah, let's just jump right into The Whisperer in Darkness. So The Whisperer in Darkness was written... Um, uh, throughout uh, 1930, we saw this in the letters. He talked quite a lot about the writing and conceiving of the Vermont story, as he called it. Um, in fact, this was uh, the early draft of this was actually put together by Robert M. Price called The Vermont Horror. That's kind of how he talked about it in his letters as the Vermont story. It got called The Whisper in Darkness later, uh, maybe by the editors. The, you know, it kind of comes from a line just at the end of the story. It's just uh, like from the last sentence of the story uses this line, Whisper in Darkness. It's not the best title for the story. I think the Vermont Hoarder might be too common in a way, but I, I think it's a little bit truer to what I think Lovecraft was going after in the story. It was published in August 31. It was sold sometime at the end of, of 1930, you know, from the letters he talked in. I think November or December of 1930 to some of his correspondents about the sale of, of The Whisper in Darkness. I think he got $350 for it, which wasn't a bad price for it. Um, so anyways, it's it's a story I, I quite like. I Actually, I like all three of these big stories. They're not my favorite, I guess, but they're, they're close runner-ups, right? They'd be in my top 10. All three of these stories would be my top 10 favorite Lovecraft stories. Um, but uh, I re what I really, one thing I really, really like about this is how it begins. Is it all is all about folklore? It's all about stories. It's all about anthropology and ethnography, and stories and and how academics deal with folklore, how people experience folklore and understand folklore. About you know how some people experience reality as, re as or folklore as reality. They see folklore as just the truth that's out there, right? The witch in the wood is a real thing. 
for many people throughout human history. And then uh, academics get, you know, come at it and say, well, no, this is all just a metaphor for something or, or, or something like that. Or, or say this is just the misogyny or whatever, going back to the witches. I've talked about that before in this podcast. But whatever kind of folklore, you know, the, the intellectuals will try to justify it scientifically and say, what is this? Is it, you know, this monster is really just fear of the dark, fear of the woods, fear of the unknown, you know, or an attempt to give some rationality to the experiences we have. And so this tension exists. And that whole first chapter of The Whisper in Darkness is all about that. In fact, our main character, now his name is Albert Wilmarth, and he's a professor of English at Miskatonic University. So this is somewhat set in Arkham, uh, in that it's a first-person narrative told by uh, an Arkham professor, a professor living in Arkham. But really, the, the heart of the story is in Vermont, and then the backcountry and the woods of Vermont, right? There's a, the town of Battleburgo is mentioned a lot, but that's just this conduit for this rural community. You barely could call it a community, right? It's just this very, very dispersed rural section of Vermont. How they connect to the outside world, like send their mail or send deliveries or, or move around through Battleboro. But that even itself is not a very big town. So it's very, you know, even though Vermont's, Vermont's kind of small, you know, it's not a very densely populated place with a lot of cities. So it's a place that fascinated Lovecraft quite a lot. And he mentions this in his letters, how much when he went to Vermont, he was struck by the the atmosphere so so much of the story is really about that kind of isolation and prim primordialness and emptiness of vermont and so he fills this in with with his whole mythology and he fills this in with a kind of another layer to his mythology now another thing this story does and i think really well is it kind of ups lovecraft's game it begins this churn where he really goes really, really cosmic, right? You could argue he, you know, other stories like even the Dunwich Horror have elements of that, but it's not, or, or you could say even call it Cthulhu, the idea that Cthulhu comes from space. But that idea that Cthulhu comes from space may even be something invented later on, like in The Shadow Over Innsmouth. It might come from later stories, but even so, it's not the main point, right? You know, in that story, Cthulhu is really of the sea of earth. Case of Charles Dexter Ward's about history. I guess you have the dream quest stuff, which, you know, has to kind of be analyzed in its own terms. But with Whisper and Darkness at the Mountains of Madness, Shadow Over Innsmouth, Dreams of the Witch House, Shadow Over Time, Lovecraft really, really goes cosmic. And this is really where he defines kind of his identity as a very particular and special writer. He's not in the mold of a Dunsany or the mold of a Poe anymore. He's kind of standing on his own two feet. And, and I think it was getting there, but this is a step forward because by making it really about these are really aliens from another planet who are tied to our deep history, tied to our traditions. He never steps away from that. It's still about traditions and deep history of Earth and all that, but he ties it to this broader cosmos. And again, if you read the letters, which we're doing, so more and more I'm convinced it's a good thing to do that, to read the letters alongside with the stories, is you find him talking, he's talking a lot more about cosmic horror while he's conceiving of these, these tales. I'll also point out there's a bit of a gap in his writing. So at least his writing of stories that he published under his name. You know, he wrote revisions. Like, I think... Um, so he wrote uh, Dunwich Horror in September 28. 
This was published in from February, or this was written from February to September 1930. So there's about a year off, and we know he wrote like The Mound at that point, Crucivier. So he has been writing, but not under his name, of course. I think The Mound is really influential in this turn as well. I'll talk about that more. I'm actually going to do two episodes on The Mound a little bit later. All right, then. So let's, yeah, let's jump into the story. Um, it's kind of a really well-constructed story, too, I think, like especially his use of letters. It's not quite as brilliant as Call of Cthulhu, but, you know, he's still able to kind of have a unique storytelling. Here, So our, our, our main character here um, is, as I said, an English professor at Miskatonic University, and he's kind of telling this story and, you know, kind of in flashback. It's first-person narrative. Um, the story has eight chapters, I believe. Um, so I'll just look at the first two chapters in this episode, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Probably two more, three, three episodes overall on this, this story. I think it's, it's worth it. So um, this is a story when you read it, you want to like actually, it actually is worthwhile to pull off like a calendar of 1928 and, and, and just have it handy to keep track of the dates because it's um, the dates actually sort of matter and just the pacing and how the story unfolds. Um, not crucial, but it's 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 kind of cool to see how careful Lovecraft was about the about the timing. He certainly had an almanac with him when he when he wrote this. Um, so, anyways, uh, it kind of begins with this flood of Vermont on November third, nineteen twenty-seven, a real event, a real historical event. But he adds to it his own kind of mythology, and what happens is all these kind of bodies appeared um, after the flood. Quote, in each case, country folk reported seeing one or more very bizarre and disturbing objects in the surging waters that poured down from the unfrequented hills, and there was a widespread tendency to connect these sites with a primitive, half-forgotten cycle of whispered legend with old people resurrected for the occasion. So right away we have a, a kind of a contrast between, you know, a, a, a naturalistic event of a commonplace event like a a flood and and local legends right that's something lovecraft does all the time local legends right local stories right so even right away he gets the newspaper clippings about the about the flood why an english professor is interested in this i'm not sure i think he's interested in the folklore of it frankly um, but instantly he writes uh we're not long after learning about the flood uh we get this. The tales thus brought to my notice came mostly through newspaper cuttings, though one yarn had an oral source and reported to a friend of mine in a letter from his mother in Hardwick, Vermont. The, the type of things described were essentially all the same cases. There just seemed to be three separate instances involved. So apparently this flood washed up some creatures, right, and kind of brought it to the attention of, of a broader public, brought it to the awareness of others. And so we get the description of these creatures, as revealed now nowadays this would be on social media right and you have everyone trying to guess what is that creature that washed up from the sea or, or was left over in the flood right what could it be all the the cryptozoologists would 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 pop out but now as we find out later very conveniently these things don't survive long as after dead they, they die after an hour uh or after a day or so after a few hours, but they, there's reports of what they look like. Quote, they were pinkish things about five feet long with crustaceous bodies bearing vast pairs of dorsal fins or membrous wings and several sets of articulated limbs with a sort of convoluted ellipsoid 
covered with multitudes on very short antenna where a head would ordinarily be, right? Um, and these reports of these different creatures tend to coincide. So if it's just random reports of people seeing dead animals that got kind of rotten and messed up by the flood, you wouldn't expect them to be so consistent, but they are. But nevertheless, Wilmarth, our narrator, it's sometimes hard to remember his name because you get Akeley's name, but it's always I um, for, for, for this guy. But, um, but anyways, that's who does Wilmarth. Um, Akeley is the kind of the main uh, figure that, that kind of pushes the story forward. Wilmarth is more just an observer of various events. Um, but anyways, he's, he starts out. He starts out here with this deep interest in kind of the folklore that emerged from this. So he starts to explore the ancient folklore of this region. And that's his interest as a literature professor, right? His, his interest is in the ancient folklore. And he starts like publishing stuff about the stories because he wants to be the debunker. This is actually kind of a nice um, predecessor to like the X-Files tales, right? Where you have the believer and the skeptic and they're sharing evidence and kind of unraveling a mystery. And then it turns out, yeah, there is something weird going on here after all. Right? Isn't that the running gag in the X-Files is how Scully remains a skeptic for so many seasons, even though she's seen all this stuff, right? It, it's unsustainable that she'd still be a skeptic. But this, this story kind of has that, where he starts out the skeptic and becomes the believer at the end after being exposed to evidence from a believer who at the beginning seems to be a whack job. Very, very modern, right? You've got a conspiracy theory, uh, some wacky person collecting evidence on his own, you know, trying to publicize it, trying to keep, you know, trying to make other people aware, exposed to truth. And then, you know, you got even got kind of men in black kind of characters in this story. That, that's kind of a fun element of it, too. So it, it seems kind of modern in that sense. So anyways, he's very. But anyways, our character, Wilmarth, is initially very interested in the folklore because they say, well, this seems to have parallels to ancient folklore from, from not only Vermont, but from even all over the world and from other parts of, you know, other things that he's read. Right. But particularly New England folklore. And things like, and there seems to be some physical evidence that can't be fully explained. So there is kind of a mystery here. Uh, we got, for instance, at one, one time he talks a little bit about the rumors that go way back. He, uh, he writes, it would have been less uncomfortable if the stray accounts of these things had not agreed so well. As it was, nearly all of the rumors had several points in common, averting that the creatures were a sort of huge light red crab with many pairs of legs with two great bat-like wings in the middle of their back. They sometimes walked on all their legs and sometimes uh, on their hindmost pair only, using the others to convey large objects of intermediate, indeterminate nature. So this is all shared, right? We also got reports here of people disappearing. Uh, and these are also stories that seem to go way back in, in history and in folklore. And he starts to have, and there's also a, a section of here where he talks about how these creatures in the folklore, now this is coming from the folklore and the stories and the legends, seem to have a local curiosity. They're a curiosity. They're, they're curious themselves. They're almost like the aliens who abduct people and give them the anal probes and drop them off later after the experiments. They seem to have an interest in, in people. They're almost like scientists, right? That they're, they have a curiosity respecting men is the way Lovecraft puts it here. So that's a great little element of it, of this story. 
Um, it's really here, though, that Wilmar says, well, let's go way back to see how back these stories go. And he's able to connect this to Puritan legends. Again, I think this is all made up. He's just connecting real people and real folkloric traditions to the folklore he's developing and in, in creating in his writings. And then that's another thing this story really does is I think this is the first story that really tries to connect a lot of the dots of this kind of mythos that Lovecraft's been creating. Right, you have, you have uh, like Yogg-Sothoth in, in a couple stories. You have Cthulhu in one, but here he tries to connect them all and, and make it one mythology, kind of world building. There's world building going on in this story. So, anyways, he says, well, some of these stories seem to jive with things Puritans are saying. Some jive with like the Scotch-Irish, the Celtic influence, and a lot connect to the Indians. Right. So this is great. The Penacook myths which were the most consistent and picturesque, taught that the winged ones came from the great bear in the sky and had mines in our earthly hills once they took a kind of stone that they could not get in any other world. They did not live here, said the myths, but merely maintained outposts and flew back with their vast cargoes of stone to their own stars in the north. End quote. So as we'll see, this is actually sort of what happens. And there's other details here that come back in the story, like animals shunning them through hatred. Well, the dogs in the story hate uh, these creatures, these Migos, and violently attack them and have a bit of a war with them, right? Their kind of, uh, their efforts to try to hide from humanity, that's in these stories. The fact that they fly out into space, right? They're on Pluto, right? That's their home. Um, the fact that they seem to have like cult cultist activities and whisper things and speak things in the night, in the forests, like the voices of men, that they know the speech of men. All these things are little details that become true, that are revealed to be true about these these creatures later in the story. The fact that they speak through tele, tele, telepathy. All this stuff is rooted in the mythology, and it turns out to be 100% true. So it is, it is very much like an X-Files episode, right? How in the X-Files, you always have Mulder saying, you know, this is what these things are. Scully says, nah-uh, and then... The evidence reveals Mulder was right all along in almost every way, right? Um, so a lot of fun. But I just really, really love this first chapter, this deep look at the, the mythology. So he connects it also to uh, um, global mythology, universal legends. Like there's a whole universe of legends, actually, talking about these types of creatures. Quote, Vermont legends differ but little in essence from the universal legends of nature personification, which filled the ancient world with fauns and dryads and satyrs, suggested the Kalinazari of modern Greece and gave to the wild whales in Ireland their dark hints of strange, small and terrible hidden races of troglodytes and burrowers. No use either to point out the even more startling similar beliefs of the Nepalese hill tribes of the dreaded Migo or abominable snowmen who lurk hideously amidst the rock and ice pillars of the Himalayan summits. When I brought up this evidence, my opponents turned against me, claiming that it must imply some actual historicity for the ancient tales, end quote. So he's trying to argue this is all just folklore, right? But what's funny here is like some people are saying, well, if everyone in the world has the same stories, like if everyone in the world had the same kind of description of a dragon, isn't the simplest explanations that there were some kind of maybe ancient um fauna that looks like dragons and it just got passed on through mythology right 
that's certainly something Lovecraft is sympathetic to because that's what he thinks about witches. He thinks witches were real cults that somehow existed and the memory of them survived into into modern times. Um, and of course, if they are historical, then they're real, right? And then that gives some credence to the stories of the people who said, we found these things washed up after the flood of 1927. But Wilmarth, the academic, the scholar, is the skeptic. And he's rejecting all of these theories and saying this is all just romanticization of folklore and mythology. And it's all fun and cute and nice. But deep down, that's all we're really dealing with here. We're dealing with the local legends run amok. Right? Anyways, a wonderful first chapter, a wonderful opening chapter to this story. Um, Beautifully, he even throws a name name drops here. Alf, 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 um, Alf, Arthur Macon saying, "Yeah, these people have just read too much Arthur Macon." Essentially, um, he's like little people. This is coming from his stories. So, anyways, chapter two, the second chapter I want to talk about today. I guess this will be a fairly short episode, but um, he's been publishing. Wilmarth has been publishing his articles, trying to denounce this idea that these things are real. And, you know, he's giving long reports, long academic scholarly reports, giving talks and all those things. And then he gets a letter from this guy. Um, letters. We only get one initially. We end up getting many letters from Akeley in the course of the story. But he does mention several, like the correspondence went on, seemed to go on for a while before it really came to a head in, is it September? Yeah, September 28, 1928. But we get one letter that basically sums up what the course of the discourse is. It's kind of an unbelievable aspect. Basically, Wilmer seems to have an endemic memory because he's like, I'm going to recreate this letter here, which hasn't survived, but I have a good memory. So and then you get a word for word depiction of the letter. Um, I don't, it would have been easier if you just had kept the letters right, in the story. But maybe that wouldn't have. You always have to have that kind of weird tension between abolishing the past, which Lovecraft wants to do. He wants his characters to burn the notes, but he also needs the notes to exist for the story to exist, right? This is told in first-person narration, so he's actually documenting this. It makes a little bit more sense than At the Mountains of Madness, where the guy's saying, don't go to Antarctica because of this, right? He has to tell the story to prevent further expeditions. This one, I, it's not clear why he's even writing it, if He's so horrified by, by what it is. But anyway, so Akeley. Now, Akeley is, we know quite a little bit about him. I think we actually end up knowing more about him than we do the narrator of the story. Um, he's kind of a yeoman farmer type of New England. He, he's, he's an intellectual. He's a practical scientist. He's an investigator of a sort. He comes from a fairly prestigious family. So he's got, he's a bit like Lovecraft in that sense. He comes from a more well-off family that's on harder times. They have a homestead in New England. And he's kind of a jack-of-all-traits. But ultimately, what it comes down to is he's essentially like a yeoman farmer, a gentleman agriculturalist, as he's called at one point. So the ideal New England figure in some ways. Um, and so this forces... One reason it's important is because is this kind of forces Wilmarth to take him seriously, right? Instead of just saying, this guy's a whack job. I'm going to throw these letters out. He kind of say, well, this Akeley, he's a gentleman agriculturalist. I must take his 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 letters totally seriously, even though he's talking about crazy stuff. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of cute how Lovecraft kind of gives Akeley this legitimacy 
by through his heritage and and, and and kind of his class status, right? There's there's actually some class elements in this story, where Akeley will say things like like you know I shouldn't trust the local people, the local ignorant people, or whatever. Um, but it's it's really amazing how he, you know, takes the time to make Akeley a respectable narrator, sub narrator, anyways, through his letters because it's letters within the story by making him basically a, a intellectual farmer. He's like a homesteader, but who has enough time at the end of his days of farming to, you know, investigate, to read, to be analytical, all that kind of thing. So maybe the ideal, the ideal New Englander, it seems to me. So, uh, so Lovecraft spends about a whole page of the story just justifying Akeley's legitimacy as a as a witness to all these things. And then we get into the letter. So this letter is dated May fifth, nineteen twenty eighth. Right. So the the main bulk of the story takes place between May and September of nineteen nineteen twenty eight. So um, so it seems that like Akeley and Wilmarth are passing letters back and forth for much of the summer of nineteen twenty eight before we get to the climax of the story. So, so much of chapter two is just the letter. It's one, two, three, like five pages. Yeah, I'm using, it, as always, the Leslie Klinger annotated edition of, of Lovecraft for these stories. So it's five pages in that book. And we don't have to go, I think, line by line through it. But basically he says, right, I know there's something, these things are real, essentially. Your, your articles, I respect them. And publicly, I kind of would agree with you because we don't need hysteria and craziness. And he's still presenting himself kind of a gentleman and, and a bit conservative and moderate and all that. But you're wrong. He says, you're just you're just totally wrong here. These things are real and I have evidence. And then he starts to sound like a whack job. And, and thankfully, Lovecraft acknowledges this at the end. Of the, at the end of the letter, he's like, again, he has to go through this process of, of justifying this letter, not as that of a whack job. Right. Part of it is who this Akeley is, that he's not the kind of person who could be a, a nut. But then there's other evidence that is revealed uh, through that. So this forces Will Marth to say, OK, maybe I am wrong. I'm going to investigate it. So, so Will Marth kind of takes this crazy nut seriously. He's convinced by the letter to a certain degree. But what does the letter say? Well, the letter says, like... Essentially, you're wrong, and the reason why is I have I have evidence, and the evidence is in things like he's got a recording of, from a dictaphone of a basically a ritual out in the woods of of Vermont, and later on he, he's not going to get it in this letter. He gets it later on sent to him, but that's from like 1913, so it's like 15 years before the events of the story. He had actually gone out in the woods, followed some creatures, and taken a recording of this. And this recording proves there, you know, there's something there. He's also got photographs of, like, footprints. He's got, uh, you know, things he's seen, local rumors and things like that. But when he starts to, like, identify what it is, the, how he puts this together, he really starts to sound like a whack job. And I think he, Lovecraft does a good job of making this guy seem a little bit off in that. So... Yeah, so you got a recording of some crazy people, drunks in a wood, giving a ritual, and you got some weird footprints. You know, who who can't who can't do that on a on a good weekend up in New England? 
Here's what he says. The things come from another planet, able to live in interstellar space and fly through it on clumsy, powerful wings, which have a way of resisting the ether, but which are too poor as steering to be of much help around the Earth. I will tell you about this later if you do not dismiss it at once as a madman. And of course, you're meant to think, oh, this guy's kind of mad, because this is how crazy people sound. You know, conspiracy theorists uh, kind of sound like this, right? They have a clear answer for things. They have an explanation for their evidence. I think that's that's key in the conspiracy theory mind, right? Is that you have, not only do you have evidence of something, because that's all, you can always have evidence of something, but when you have a clear narrative associated with it, that is the sign of a conspiracy theorist, right? Because, you know, often the facts are that conspiracy theorists use, there's some truth to it, right? They're, they're, it's based in reality in many cases, but it's the narrative they create from it that goes, you know, is off the wall, right? Um, so he said, they could easily conquer the earth, but have not tried so far because they have not needed to. They would rather leave things as they are uh, to save bother, right? That sounds like something, uh, you know, someone who's been abducted by aliens and comes back with a whole narrative of what the aliens are up to would sound like, it seems to me. Um, but what's going on? Well, one problem, now this is really f great in the story, is how Akeley suggests, you know, the real problem, part of the problems is Vermont's been developing and there's been real estate that's been expanding and people have been moving into Vermont. And so it's been kind of pressuring the Migos environment. It's been pressuring where they live. They've been being pushed farther and farther into the woods and, you know, it might be harder for them to hide. And then he says, well, I'm just probably going to get out of here. I'm just letting you know that there's something out here and I'm going to give you the evidence of it. But basically, I'm figuring out how to leave. It's hard because he's such in love. He, you know, he's very much like Lovecraft. Akeley is. He needs to be in his natural environment. He wouldn't be happy going to live with his son in California, but he might have to. Um, and then we get a wonderful laugh out loud moment where he says, uh, Akeley writes, I suppose you know about these fearful myths at the, attending the coming of men on Earth, the Yogg, Sothoth, and Cthulhu cycles, which are hinted at in the Necronomicon. I had access to a copy of that once, and I hear you have one at your college under lock and key. So again, this book that no one's supposed to read, like even Akeley, this this weird guy up in Vermont has read it. Um, so the conclusion the conclusion Akeley gives is we should continue to correspond. I'm going to send you this evidence, these photographs, and the 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 recording of the dictaphone. Right, it's basically like a a recording device make a, how to make a record or whatever. You take like a, something to do with wax and you kind of make a wax impression and then you can play it on a record player. Um, he does send him some photos. That's what he sends him as evidence. So the rest of chapter two then is, is Wilmart kind of evaluating the evidence that he's been presented. So he gets some of Wilmart's skepticism, but he starts to also say this evidence does seem to have something with it. It's not totally... Um, there's some objectivity like technology. That's the thing. Wilmart is more of a modern minded person. He says the technology provides kind of some evidence without quote, without prejudice, fall fallibility or mendacity end quote. So pictures, the dictaphone, these kinds of things provide real concrete evidence that there is something out there. And Wilmart is open minded enough to consider it after being exposed to the evidence. He starts to think something really is out there, particularly because he sees the footprints, the photographs of the footprints. Um, but the real evidence, and I think a lot of the rest of this chapter deals with 
the mythology evidence, where he starts to reconsider and reevaluate the mythological evidence that he previously just rejected as just the mythology you get anywhere. He starts to see connections between things, right? And he starts to see things in the text of the letter that tie to like the Necronomicon. And a key fact factor of this is he starts to, I mean, really what it comes down to, I don't know if it's in this chapter or a later one, I think it might be a little bit later, is the Migo are engaged in, definitely this is the next chapter, but the Migo, these aliens are engaged in the traditions that cults like the Cthulhu cult or or Wizard Watley with the Oxford are engaged in, right? They're carrying on that ancient religions as much as some of these earthly cults are, and they're part of the same kind of deep history of the cosmos, right? So at first when I read the story, I kind of thought, oh, he's just name-dropping Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth for fun. And to some degree, he's doing that. He's just trying to work that mythology into the story. The story works without that. But he adds, but I think if you take it seriously and you take it earnestly, he's trying to say that the Migos are as much part of these ancient traditions as are these like the Eskimos or the or Castro's cult in New Orleans. Right. So basically, uh, we also get the first hint here of Pluto being the planet of the of the Migo being Yugoth. Uh, he says, I'm almost glad that the letter and record and photographs are now gone. And I wish for reasons I shall soon make clear that the new planet beyond Neptune was never discovered. So that planet was discovered around the time that this story was written, right at the time that these events in the story take place. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it adds a layer of kind of realism and contemporary, con, you know, contemporary kind of, he, he adds some contemporary events to the story, just like the Vermont flood, the discovery of Pluto add to the, to the story, right? So he comes to the conclusion that there is something to this, to Akeley's rants. It's not just a crazy guy, right? And I, and I think Lovecraft does a pretty convincing job of taking this letter that at first glance seems to be the letter of a madman and then to show why someone as rational as Wilmarth could come to kind of go along with that story, right? Because you can't deny the evidence. So anyways, a, a little bit shorter episode, but I think that's fine. I, 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 I'll have, um, I don't, I don't want to say too much more about the first two chapters. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters three, four, five of Whisper in Darkness, which will take us to well over halfway through the story and right up to the bridge at the climax, and then we'll finish it up in a third episode, I guess. But I, I think that's enough. I really love the first chapter of this, of this story. I think it's just a wonderful experiment about myth and reality and how they intersect and this debate over whether mythology is reflecting true events in our primordial past or whether they're just symbols of to help us cope with the the randomness of the universe or whatever but yeah a lot of fun and then we get to meet Akeley and I think Lovecraft has a lot of fun with with this Akeley letter we'll get a lot more of these Akeley letters in the next in the next episode or two. So, anyways, glad to be here. Glad to be uh, jumping back into the stories after after the letters. Um, I'm glad to get into a couple stories that are really going to give us a lot to talk about over the next several weeks. So, um, yeah, 
that'll be it for now. So let me know what you think of Whisper in Darkness, especially the first couple of chapters. If you have, if there's anything I missed, anything important that I didn't talk about, let me know what it is. There's a few things I, I kind of glossed over, but I think it'll be fine. I think I, get, I, I kind of said what I wanted to say about this part of the story. But share your ideas with me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, now, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time as we dig deeper into the whisperer in darkness. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind. Cause him his graveyard work. And I'm polished up my pistol. My razor sharp in two. He'll think the world.